Hi, Nate. Hey, Tom. Do you know what you call a thousand lawyers at the bottom of the sea? GPT-4. <laughs> no, that's actually an old joke. The answer is a good start. Uh, Do you know you call a thousand content moderators at the bottom of the sea? 12. Twitter. They don't have the money Fa for that. I was going to say, <laughs> uh, Facebook... 15 years ago. <laughs> um, welcome to the retort. Today, the episode that we're preemptively titling Methods of Rationality in the Time of Hype. We're digging back to some AI safety EA lore in the honor of Sam Altman changing his profile on Twitter to be a Eliezer Yukowski fan fiction account. So we're going to get some more content from Sam, it seems. Explain why this is ridiculous. Talk generally about hype and if hype can continue for as long as we are now going. At what point does hype get rebranded as just momentum and relevance? And then maybe talking about job search money matters not relevant to the podcast we don't make any money and other things so um what do you think of this bio to start what does it bring back for you yeah let me make sure i have the wording right here so i don't want to misquote this i'm looking at it right now so it's sam altman uh, his bio says Eliezer Yudkowsky fan fiction account. So kind of beautifully specific there. What it, yeah, what it brought up for me. Um, this is kind of a deep cut. At least that's the way I read it to a, a specific document. I'll call it a palimpsest would be the, the classical term uh, to a, Fan, a piece of fan fiction that Eliezer Yudkowsky wrote. I actually don't even remember how long ago it was. It's just in the before time. It's very, it's before deep learning. <laughs> it's a very long time ago. Uh, called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Or to those who have spent time with it and love it and sleep with it, HP Moore for short. And it is, to sum it up, a, a novel, I guess. It's a retelling of the entire series of Harry Potter books. So it covers the entire story, uh, all seven, the content of all seven books, uh, kind of sped up. And the, the only kind of change from the original, you know, series by J.K. Rowling is that Harry, uh, had a dad who was a, I believe, a professor of logic at Oxford University. So basically his dad is or was a rationalist. <laughs> I might be I might be flubbing it slightly in the sense it might be like Mr. Dursley is the rationalist, I'm not sure. But the point is Harry has kind of been, in, I mean, I would say indoctrinated into a certain way of arriving at truth and distinguishing it from falsehoods. 
<laughs> and so when the rest of the series kicks off, of course, it starts with Harry receiving these, you know, letters from these owls and whatnot. He approached all those phenomena. So everything between that and, you know, the confrontations with Voldemort and whatnot, Harry approaches like a rationalist. <laughs> um, yeah, so hilarity ensues, I guess, is the, is the byline uh, of, of the story. And I should, I should say charitably, um, you know, it's freely available online, the entire text. And we'll link um, to it in the description. We will link to it. Yeah. And and we should also link to um there's a there's actually an audiobook that somebody made of the entire uh text, which is actually quite entertaining, which is also funny, of course, because the audiobooks for the original Harry Potter novels are quite popular and you know, people listen to those. So maybe it honors that, but they do voices and whatnot, so it's kind of funny. Um and honestly, you know in a more analytical way, the book is a good introduction to the mindset, I mean, the world of of rationalism, so, rationalists. So do they still expect to win the, the, what is it, the Triwizard Cup and defeat all evil while being a rationalist? It's a whole thing. It's, it's... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't want, I both don't want to spoil the book, but also can't help but spoil certain parts of it because it is so We got to give amazing. the good stuff. <laughs> I'll give some of the good stuff. Some of it is too good for me to even spoil. <laughs> but, you know, what I recall is Harry, first of all, of course, Harry takes a long time to get convinced that magic is exists uh, for obvious reasons, which is that it's not... Um, I like this it's is not a false. hilarious <laughs> metaphor, though, because a lot of the effective altruist people are some of the most convinced that methods that are not proven in our current AIs will be proven in the next rendition. Like a lot of the EA AI safety arguments are based on the fact that behaviors are expected to be emerged, <laughs> and their most popular introductory material conflict is conflicted with that. Well, right. There's a tension here that H.P. Moore reflects and that I do think the culture of rationalists in general very much reflects. And it also kind of inspired, you know, my approach to the retort, which is there's this weird fascination. The more rational you think of yourself as being, you just have this weird fascination with things that are not rational. The occult, <laughs> um, spirituality, sometimes literally alchemy. I first learned about the History of Alchemy podcast from rationalists. I mean, they're fascinated by this stuff, like esotericism, all sorts of supernatural uh, pseudo-explanations of phenomena. And I say this not in a pejorative way. This is just true. This is just part of the culture. There just is a kind of lurid attention to the history of a certain kind of, you know, I want to say charlatan, but, you know, also just it's a, it's a different mode of experiencing and accounting for things that is just not the way science works. It's not the scientific method, nor does it want to be. And I think that's part of the fascination is why do you need a particular kind of method to arrive at truth where you're accountable to something outside your own head is this perennial you know, question that I, I, so you're saying they're accountable to rationality. That's a lot of the drama of the book 
is it's actually quite a fascinating text because Harry, I didn't I skipped this part. So Harry becomes best friends with Draco, not Ron. He immediately dismisses Ron. Ron's a dumbass. It's not why would you be friends with this person? <laughs> okay, but but he's he's fascinated by Draco, partly because Draco is clearly powerful. He's a scion of this, you know. I feel like these are literally the dynamics that we see at play. Like we see like half of the dynamics that their things are doing and half of the things that they should be doing, but they're not doing. Like the, the uh, AI safety people should be like, the things they're saying are based on if magic is real and now <laughs> they should lean into HP more. more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, HP more is also, it's kind of a mantra. It's not just the title of the book. You have to HP more. It's a, it's a kind of a call. It's a call to to being. Um, yeah, so he's fascinated by Draco because Draco is somebody from whom he can learn how power works in this world. Once he accepts magic does exist, at least in this world, the, the next most rational thing to do is to be close to the people who have power in that world so that he can quickly just learn you know how to how to how to get how to accrue power and influence. I mean, it's actually the hilarious. The book really takes off when he goes to Gringotts for the first time, and Harry becomes obsessed with the uh, the kind of conversion rates between different currencies with, with with galleons and whatnot. And he starts like just in real time doing arbitrage between these different currencies. And I think like somebody like tries to stop him. Like, no, that's not you're not supposed to do that. But he's just instantly taken with this this world because it, it's just a different set of rules. So it's really not magical in, in Harry's rational way of thinking in the sense that it's not without explanation. It's just a different realm of explanation than the one he has up until the age of 11, I guess, been familiar with. And so the, the drama of the book is really Harry being like, how can I, as an outsider, learn the rules of this world in a way that is faster and better than anybody in that world because I recognize that they're arbitrary and I recognize that they can be thought through and over. And so his friendship with Draco is partly strategic and intentional and partly just kind of fascinated by how this works. But he, there is a scene where he sort of converts Draco to being a rationalist and Draco stops being racist as a result. Because, of course, that's a whole thing in the books is Draco is, you know, he calls people mudbloods and he he has all these, you know, there are racial epithets of other, other kinds and he's very prejudiced. And there's a scene in the book where uh, Harry sort of does to Draco what a lot of rationalists, I mean, frankly, kind of do to each other, which is conduct these sorts of uh, thought experiments and, and cognitive games where you sort of entrap somebody in a set of assumptions that requires them to abandon, I mean, entire sectors of their worldview because they're just not consistent with the commitment, the commitment to being rational, internally consistent, engaging the universe on its own terms, whatever. And so the drama of the book is this like tension between taking the most rational way of thinking, the most, in a sense, enlightenment-friendly way of being that there ever could be, and putting it right up against a world that is entirely alchemical, entirely mystical, entirely supernatural in its bearing. And there's a fascination there that you see today. You see it in the statements that Sam Altman makes. You see it in the statements, I mean, 
Eliezer himself makes, you see it all over the place. This kind of willingness to go right up to the edge. I'm surprised that Sam Altman still engages. So in in researching this, we saw that Sam had said in April on some podcast, he was like, when asked about Eliezer Yukowski, which we'll cover more soon, he was like, I like them a lot. They're a bit of a doomer. But when confronted with the fact that AI is getting really close to things, you can't help but like blame them or something, something like extremely neutral. Uh, like the uh, the dynamic by which his entire company knows a lot of Eliezer's background, and they're probably pretty immune by being smarter and in a different cult at this point. It's like the fact that someone with so many eyes on him still lends clearance to this stuff is shocking, pretty wild. Like that's the whole the whole point that why him changing his Twitter bio matters at all. Not that I think the Twitter bio is a real important thing. It's just the fact that somehow it's Eliezer Yukowski is staying relevant through this stuff. And what the, like, a year, we're like a year on. It's like, ChatGPT is like a year old. And that's why I'm like, when does this transition to from hype to just being a new broken reality? I'm not sure it's going to transition, at least not that easily, because people like Eliezer are selling things that other people are buying. So even if it wasn't Eliezer, somebody else would would sell it. In fact, other people do. <laughs> I think that Eliezer in some ways was just first. And frankly, and I don't, you know, he's kind of the best at it in some ways. If you want like the straight heroine, the straight rationalist heroine, like, yeah, that's your guy. <laughs> um, and he still is. Um, and he's a symbol of that, but he lives up to the symbol. He lives up to that that uh, archetype. You know, it's, it's powerful and it's elemental. And so there's a kind of a, that, that has to be taken seriously. So like, yeah, when I saw the change in the bio, it, it kind of, it's, it's funny. It's also sobering because it shows that some people who are pretty now close to the helm of capitalism um, are not exactly taking marching orders from you know, people who, in my view, often like are doing and saying pretty crackpot things. Uh, but they're also not exactly not. <laughs> and and we're living in a media ecosystem where that's just how it feels. Um, and again, there's this what we what we're seeing is the flavors of rationalism and irrationalism, or you know, of science and magic, are both getting turned up to eleven, and they get turned up higher and higher the closer they get to each other. And I think that, for me, accounts for most of the flavor of the, if we want to call it the doomer discourse or the X-risk discourse. That's where it's coming from. Yeah, and that's parallel probably most of our disappointment and frustration. It's like the people and things that head nod to things as a way of getting out of a complete reaction and while their head nod, while it feels like they're just kind of doing a meh, I don't want to comment on it, a lot of times just as a validation or something like this. 
I mean, part of the issue, these stories are out there. I mean, we can link to some examples of these news reports that have come out over the course of years, but there is a extremely powerful and coercive uh, social hierarchy at the heart of some of these communities for the reason that when you commit yourself when you're committing yourself entirely to instrumental rationality you you're always looking for reasons to not just defer to somebody else who has more information than you or who seems to have more information than you the bayesianism taken up to its limit pushes you towards a certain kind of hierarchy a certain kind of deference to a certain kind of expert a certain kind of expertise and frankly, that's why you see in some of these communities this regression, this periodic regression to very particular voices, very particular perspectives, because the social cost of challenging them just becomes too great. And so there's a regression to a kind of totalitarian like discourse, basically, where to, because any alternative, they, they basically have a monopoly on authority. With, Which I guess within takes us their back community to the high point. or within their idea scope. Oh, within yeah, that's an important distinction. I think I meant to say within their community, right? So again, I'm on record. Yeah, I mean, I I personally, you know, I I both collaborate still, you know, with members of the AI safety community, um, members of the members of the rationalist community as well. Um, so it's, I don't it's important mean to distinct that they're to, to show that they are separate. And they're not completely overlapped. Oh, they're absolutely not. They're not the same. Absolutely not. We and kind I, of talk about them quickly. And we have we're both sensitive. That. We're both sensitive to that, I think. And I, and I also very much understand that in my both my friendships and my collaborations. Um, but those are they're often not distinguished in public. So that should be made clear here that they're not the same. They are, however, overlapping. And there is a cross current where ideas that start in one community get picked up by another, and also I think get interpreted differently by the other. And the fact that a lot of that happens online, a lot of it happens on Twitter. X, sorry, I guess I should call it that. Um, yeah. Um, is weird here because we want to call it, actually, I mean, you and I have discussed this before. There's the part of us that's always like, oh, it's happening in public. We're seeing this all happening in public, but Twitter is not public space if we're being, you know, kind of honest about it. Twitter is not public space. What do I mean by that? Um, it's not public space if you don't get to decide how you use it. And nobody who's on Twitter enjoys anything like that kind of agency. I don't care if you have no followers or a million followers. Everyone is positioned when you're on a platform like that, either into the position of a follower or into the position of speaking to your own followers. That's not public space the business model of the company and the way in which the algorithm operates, the recommender is very constraining about the way this works. How so we see these Twitter literally runs out of money. I was hearing about Twitter being out of money recently. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, as long as we're just talking about this, it kind of seems like a foregone conclusion at this point. I don't I know. know. A year ago, a I year ago, it would be we... a good thing for the ML discourse. 
is the ML discourse feels like it's crescendoing on Twitter, where like there used to be a plurality of opinions. And now and every now and then it's like one of them drops off and there's just increasingly loud people that tend to get increasingly nonsensical. I, maybe I'm mm-hmm. doing this too, but like I just see all these people that I've like a year ago and engage with them and now they 10x their following and I feel like they just say nonsense. And it's like, like why? and there are fewer people. It's just hard to notice the fact that a lot of people you used to interact with just disappear. Just definitely so a year ago... The concern, I think, at least that I had, I don't even know if it was a concern. It was more just like a prediction. The, the, the idea was that Musk might just destroy Twitter because he's going to fire people who are critical to its operation. So there was like a hot minute. I remember this in like November of last year when it almost seemed like Twitter might just literally break because he so much of the team either quit or was fired. I mean, he, tired, he fired the entire ethics team. <laughs> it was it was quite a... It's like that line from Shakespeare. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> another another anti-lawyer joke on this podcast <laughs> today. <laughs> um, yeah, like that was the initial thought. And then it turns out actually something more interesting is happening, which is Twitter is just dying socially. It's just sort of people are just gradually... Partly because there's competitors. Actually, like that's... I mean, that's a lot of it right there. And I think also partly because the toxicity of it is becoming not just unfortunate, but it's like very difficult to ignore at a certain point. It'd be um, it'd be a very good test for like the hype meters if for Twitter to actually die, and if the people in ML that are just kind of used to having a like an IV of information all the time, what that changes to their worldview around AI, and then for the like restructuring of whenever the new platforms emerge is very di- normally a very different crowd of people who actually has a voice and I might have resetting mm-hmm. that conversation and seeing the transition from like who is loud like, like if it just becomes the same thing which i honestly think it'd probably be pretty similar with just different people but what that does to the momentum vibe on the ground i don't know if i literally had a dream that is what I'm about to describe. But I had a kind of vision in the last week or so of like, there could there's a situation here where like, as Twitter is, it's kind of like the way a star implodes, you know, that it becomes like a brown dwarf. It's still a star, but it's a different kind of star than it was. And I had this vision in my head of like Twitter dying and dying and dying until maybe there's only like 20 people left. <laughs> But they all have a million followers, <laughs> right? But yes, but it's it's but it's Yan Lacoon and it's 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 Gary Marcus and it's yeah, like Elliot's oh still and then there. It's Tim Nitt. <laughs> and Tim, Tim there and Sam Altman is yes, and they're just right, and they're just still just duking it out, and it kind of just becomes I don't know, like a message board just with the twenty of them, <laughs> but they still nominally have a million followers or whatever. Yeah, and that that's like the brown dwarf state of Twitter is just that continuing dynamic between them. And we call that optimization. Yeah, okay. I think this is enough on Twitter. I think we should revisit (laughs) the kind of do we think we are actually on a hype cycle and what does hype actually mean and where we see things going. Like, personally, I don't see much changing in the time being like whatever you call this as hype right now it's like 
we are years away from the money running out and we are years away from the rate of progress seeming any slower. It's like, like, like what is going to be the condition that changes anything other than extreme? I don't know. Does it count as a black swan? The black swan event is like the government passes meaningful AI regulation <laughs> and then the hype dates down. It's like, that's why I'm like, is it still hype if we're all normalized to it? There's like students that this is the whole thing they see when they're going through grad school. It's like only this. It's funny you put it that way. I just had another kind of, I have a lot of visions today, I guess. I know the vision just go through my head of like being alive in the like 16th century and you're like in, I don't know, France or something and you're just some nobleman or something and you're walking down a street and you're seeing these printers passing out copies of some gazette that's like today this is what's going on and then yesterday there was an issue and tomorrow you know there's going to be an issue and the nobleman turns to another one nobleman being like when is this going to stop when are they just going to stop doing this this news (laughs) as if as if that matters right like it can't last But it's crazy when you think about that, right? There's been a continuous, at least in the West, there's been a continuous thread every single day of a document. And now it's just, you know, billions of documents, but at least one document going back half a millennium of what the fuck happened that day. What happened that day? (laughs) And yeah, is that hype? I mean, it just never ended. So it's just part of what it means to be modern is that we just assign extreme significance to what happens today social media maybe has just turned that up to hour by hour but yeah i think ai might just be a part of the way we understand ourselves now where we're just in the cycle of and it's just a space where there is a lot happening and there's a lot happening in ways that people can feel or imagine feeling it soon like people felt the change that chat gpt brought And I think it's a safe assumption to say that we're going to have experiences that feel similarly transformative a couple times a year for the time being. I think some very reputable people said that like ChatGPT being able to interact with the voice is close to it. So it's like if your AirPods have ChatGPT in them, I like I use the like, hey, Siri stuff. It's just Siri is bad. But if you could have a full on conversation with that, it's like a very different experience where you're immersed in it. Like I think that'll be one that people see and there will probably be more and it it's unsettling. And I think that might just be why people call it that it is hype because everyone's so focused on it, but it's almost like it's, it's almost measured. Like a lot of it is almost measured in the level of change that people will be seeing. Like, I don't think, like, I don't think all of it is worth casting down on hype. It's just that the hype, as like if you're describing the hype as the momentum and the impact and the like uncertainty that that causes, then it is like it's okay to be frustrated or stressed or whatever your reaction is to that. Yeah, I don't know that either of us is anti-hype in the sense that I think it matters what's happening. That technological development is real. There's at least, there's more than one dimension of hype going on here. So I guess to be clear, so I, I, I would broadly define hype itself, like we're just in the abstract, what is hype? Hype is some kind of monopoly on attention. 
there's something about everyone or most people feeling compelled to pay attention to something, whether that's Taylor Swift, whether that's AI, whether that's the movie Oppenheimer, when something overtakes the zeitgeist for some period of time, for that period of time, that's that's where hype is. That's what hype amounts to. So, you know, I entered the field. Actually, it was very specific. I mean, I remember AlphaGo. I remember April 2016. I remember staying up late to watch those some of those games live <laughs> from Korea. Uh, and that, for me, was a moment. That was a hype moment. I think it was a more specialized one. I don't know if the public was so moved by that. But I was like, okay, this is real. This is going somewhere. This is important. And that was enough for me to jump ship into this world. And since then, I haven't looked back, really. And I think what we're seeing now, it's that we're not only seeing technological development. It's that it's intervening on things that most people, most of the time, were already feeling insecure about and already feeling vulnerable about. So that's where, I mean, I see when I come home every day now, I see half a dozen billboards in New York City in Midtown of like, A, I took my job. And then the bottom line is to the next level. (laughs) (laughs) Those are really different than the SF version. I love the SF billboards. It's like the AI you need or something. Like some silly, there's an Airbnb billboard all the time. What, What people feel, what normies feel, what people who are not in AI feel is precarity. Like pretty much everybody. It's actually kind of interesting how many people feel it at many different stages of their careers feel this precarity. This It's an uncertainty that is personal. It feels personal and it feels like you don't know what your own job will look like in just a few months from now because you're not in control of that. Now, it's interesting, right? Because actually we were never in control of those things. That kind of control is a fiction. What the technology does is basically confront you with that fiction. You're not in control. Actually, no one is. If you look to the people building it, they're telling you that they think the world's going to end. So it's not like they have the answers, at least not of the kind that makes you feel better. So that's that. there's a double loop there. There's a sense of like, I'm already feeling vulnerable. And then the people behind this feel even more vulnerable or telling me to feel more vulnerable than I already feel. Yeah, so I secretly looked up the dictionary definition for hype to get the grounds on this, and I think it is useful in the kind of two groups we're talking about. So essentially, there's kind of two things. that There's two ors in it. It's like intensely or extravagantly. It's too, too intensely or extravagantly publicize or promote. And I think that it's like, if you take it as intense publication, the people that are kind of, the Luddites of the world are getting exposed to that. Like they're, they're just seeing every day, like Google, whoever rolling out AI tools. They're like, I don't, I, I, I read books. <laughs> they have paper and stuff still, but then the people in the field are getting subject to like extravagant promotion. And like both of those count as hype and they are very different stories to live in. And they're intertwined. And that's probably, what the like maybe why it's hard to pin down like exactly how bad hype is or if it's actually an avoidable term i mean to bring home the analogy to reinforcement learning you could describe hype as both a state 
and an action. <laughs> you can both do things in a way that hypes those things, proselytizing them, pushing it down people's throats, you know, making people look at something. But then there's also just the environment that that creates over time, an environment that is defined by people expecting to click on the next story about ChatGPT or generative AI or whatever it is because they're primed. And that's when you get this, that's when it starts to get run away, like a runaway effect. When people are already ready to be feeling the things, you don't have to even make them feel them anymore. They're just ready. And of course that factors into the money issue too, because it's a lot easier for a certain kind of money to flow and get invested in when everyone is either themselves afraid or know that enough other people are that this investment makes sense because there will have to be a business model for this tool because people will be too afraid to not buy it. I think the liquidity that has flown into the area is probably the biggest mistake of the hype. So essentially all the investments that were made since probably the last six months, what is that, Since, since like April, most of those are probably VCs that are like, shit, we missed the boat. Let's try to buy things. And from the perspective of thoroughly searching the space of AI solutions, it is good to get a lot of investments and a lot of different people doing slightly different things with the transformer models to figure out what works. But that is like, that's probably the biggest source of like the rocky market dynamic that we all have, where there's just been so much funding. Like anyone that the, solid cv as a researcher can pretty much raise money with no questions asked on products and a lot of people are doing that which i understand it's your opportunity to give take a swing for the fences without a lot of consequence and without a lot of like actual need to figure it out ahead of times like you do for a startup to take time to like incubate your ideas but that model is now trickled down onto employees that it's like most teams are feel like so many people feel strange and like finding a job is okay. Be more specific. They feel strange as if it's like hard to find the perfect job. The grass is not necessarily greener. It's like a lot of people have a lot of turnover at these companies. You talk to companies, they're like, we have a lot of money and we want research scientists that have experience in LLMs, but we don't know what we're going to work on yet. We just need to get a great team and we'll figure it out, which from a neutral person that is invested in the ecosystem broadly, it's just like, okay, have fun. I don't really care if you fail. Like some of you will succeed. Uh, and that's most of my positioning. And you're probably similar. It's just like, I've invested in the arc of the whole thing and like getting too zoomed in is just not great. But from a zoomed in perspective, there's going to be a lot of trouble. And I think a mechanism to mitigate that chance of risk is hype. So that's kind of where it links. It's like startups need to do that to get traction. They absolutely do. Yeah, I mean, when you're trying to get something off the ground, when you're a founder, you have to be a storyteller. And you better be good at it. Where good doesn't just mean the story is good. It means you're sinking your hooks into whoever's listening to you and being like, I'm worth investing in. So that's why it's, I always try to maintain a kind of love the warrior, hate the war kind of mindset to this dynamic, because of course, 
people are going to double down on hype on hype if they think that it's likely to be something that can benefit their position in this in this ecosystem right um it's kind of a it's kind of a tragedy of the commons except the commons in this case would be like I don't know, mental health or emotional well-being or something like that, or just <laughs> the attention. VCs. <laughs> a lot yeah, of, oh, of, the, 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 most of the VCs. This will probably be the make or break time of most of the VC funds that aren't already established. <laughs> and it's I'm like, okay, I don't know where they yeah. get that money. <laughs> like whatever, but like it sucks for them. It's like much harder. It's ex- it's extremely difficult. My sense right now is that it's extremely difficult for anybody to navigate this ecosystem with integrity. If integ- if part of what integrity, you can look up the dictionary definition of this too. I'm just doing it off the top of my head. If part of what integrity means is being consistent with your own convictions across time, then you're kind of constantly being tested in that regard because when it becomes rational for you to make other people afraid or believe that you're the only thing or at least the most likely thing that can release them from a state of fear or secure some investment, which again, I think is basically a fear calculus in many ways. There's this question of, you know, you probably wouldn't be doing that if this was 12 months ago. And you might not be doing that 12 months from now. So is the version of you that's engaging in that strategy consistent in any kind of moral way? Or frankly, even a psychological way with the version of you that wanted to do this in the first place? I think it's a hard question. And again, I say this, I keep saying this is like my mantra. This is not pejorative. Because I understand these tensions and live with them myself every day, as I'm sure. I yeah, mean, I mean, I just you do, went yeah. through a job search. It's like the realistic question is like, do I just go work for somewhere where I could make twice as much money, or do I try to uh, like? I think this time I actually had less of a like, as in the last month, I had less of an issue trying to stick to my convictions now that I have like career momentum and validation. But like, if you're coming out of a PhD, it's like it's it's such you're standing in quicksand. And it's hard to feel like you're doing the right thing and or like work that you can believe in. And I've like heard from people in the industry that have this tension of like I'm trying to do something that I feel like people aren't listening and or there's like not the the landscape for that to actually be delivered to other people's senses. Like that is I I think that's something that we want to support. I mean, like that's probably why part of why we started this is to vocalize the tensions that we have like my job search was much more straightforward than i expected probably because of like market dynamics and like the work i've done to be public in the last time being i don't think that'll always be the case i guess for me yeah part of the reason this project this podcast appealed to me too is Integrity is also something you might need help with or might need support on. It's not necessarily healthy or sustainable for you to just be this kind of, you know, stoic asshole who's just constantly falling back on your like your own sense of moral worth or superiority. Like accountability, in other words, is a gateway to integrity. And so 
inviting people who you trust and respect to maybe question your decisions or just to get feedback from them to to inform your judgment is in other words to be vulnerable in public is a gateway to integrity <laughs> to bring it back a little bit i don't think that's a way that social media mostly works right now which again is ironic <laughs> but i think that the are my interest in a different interface to both air my views and get feedback on them is that you know we're all winging it and i'm just navigating this as the best i can and i'm also aware that that's probably not anywhere near good enough and so all you can really do in a situation like that if you still care is show your work show your thoughts show your feelings show your beliefs and look from that a way to reevaluate integrity really is about knowing where you stand and if you don't know where you stand you need people you trust or people whose judgment seems sound i, I think to it's show more you. to be to act with integrity you need to know where you stand rather than integrity being knowing where you stand mm, yeah that's true that's the right way to say it actually where i was going with that was um it's interesting to bring it back to the rationalist discussion again, because I think the rationalist kind of worldview is that integrity really can be boiled down to heuristics. Um, and that's, I mean, the the kind of fallacy hunting that many of those texts do or less wrong is about, or that H.P. Moore itself is about, or the kind of, you know, certain style of self-interrogations or internal consistencies or checks on each other's claims to falsifiability. Those are all heuristics. And you can imagine a species of aliens basically all doing exactly the same thing. It doesn't depend in any way on where you are, who you're from, where you're from. <laughs> I mix those up. Who you are or where you're from. And I think to, as you put it, to act with integrity, that's not sufficient. You need to have a sense of not just your own history, but your own grounding in what matters so that you can distinguish what matters from what doesn't when you're faced with choices that are consequential. There is no, if there is a, if there is a super rational godlike answer to that, we just don't have access to it. I, I mean, maybe I, you can wish that we did and there's pathos in that. Maybe there's tragedy in it. I mean, this is ancient tragedy. <laughs> we're going way back now. The ancient tragedies by the Greeks were basically about that. They're like, we just, we have, we're, we reason like gods, but we, we act like beasts. So what, how do you make sense of that riddle? That's what it means to be human. Yeah. And I do think that, like, a lot of people will be, facing these things in their workplace in ways that they may or may not realize it in terms of like using human data and actually like changing the scope of how humans lives are lived. Probably a lot of the people listening to this, it probably skews younger based on our relative small audience at the start, but that'll grow. And those decisions will eventually <laughs> grow. I don't know. It's just like, I've seen things that I felt like were acting like integrity within my work. Which is mostly like, is it okay to release a certain model or certain data sets actually collected in a manner that seems to reflect basic human values of privacy or something? And I haven't really had to deploy anything particularly powerful. But as 
deploying these models becomes easier. It's like there's a lot of power in that and, yeah. and just actually raising concerns and trying to think through like, what does this mean? Uh, this is one of the early terms of our, this is like one of the early questions of the work that we've done together well before ChatGPT. It's just like setting up individuals with the toolkit to think about the issues that they may be implicitly touching on in their work. I think in our world, integrity often rears its head, the question of it, when you find yourself wondering, when is it right to say no? No to a deployment, no to a data set, no to a, some pipeline, no to some procedure. Because we don't, we, we rarely have to say no. I mean, in any yeah. of those senses, yeah, yeah. I mean, the like off the record thing is what I what we were talking about is like changing careers once you have some visibility. As like you had told me, like, oh yeah, you're just gonna fail upwards at this point, and I was like, kind of like, yeah. And it's like <laughs> at some point I have to like make sure that's not what is just happening, and you actually have meaningful impact. But I think that it's like vulnerable and hopefully some sort of integrity to be open with the fact that you're on that ride and i don't think a lot of the people building ai will be sensitive to the fact that they are in a position for a lot of reasons that are most like a lot of luck and past reasons and now they are doing very important things based on kind of meandering path and that can get to your head so much of it is rooted in this it's funny how like I even only recently started really processing this in the context of my own job search that so much of what we do in AI is astonishingly abstract. It's abstract. I don't just mean that in the sense that it's like math or it's code. I mean, it's abstract in the language we use to talk about it and make sense of it. Talking about capabilities, talking about the features of some model. Models are not real. I keep saying this. <laughs> they're not real. So if we're being literal, models don't have features. That they're just representations of things that have features and so on and so forth, right? But we're we're in a kind of ether where and we're all in it together. Where we're kind we kind of have this permission, this kind of collective insanity, where we can talk about these things as if they're real. And then assign stakes to them, like they're ethical or not, or they're safe or not, or they're whatever, right? But they actually, that's not even wrong to say those things, because what we're talking about are not actual things that exist. They're Wait, just what representations. What do you mean by that? You mean, like, the numbers aren't real? I mean, you could print the numbers well, on a real thing. That's an old philosophical chess. Like, you can make a, ch a chip that is literally a neural network. And it would be really, you can make it really efficient. What I mean when I say that they're not real is that they're not real in terms of our own decisions and actions. So numbers maybe, in fact, are real in some metaphysical sense. This is an old debate, and, and the same could be true. I mean, yes, in terms of the formalisms, the question is really when we're making a decision about these things, what is the reality that that's grounded in? The abstraction doesn't tell you because often the abstractions are arbitrary. 
you have to you have to pin the tail on the donkey when you are making a decision about a data set or about a learning technique or about a fine-tuning approach or about an interface or whatever it is. That's when you're actually sticking the landing. And until that point, it's entirely provisional. But because many of us are often either in a massively distributed pipeline or are so removed from those pipelines that we're kind of just in the position to critically talk about them, we're very rarely forced to show our hand in that sense. We're very rarely forced to say, to bring it back to a previous episode, what a good road would be or what a good education system would be or what a good energy ecosystem, energy infrastructure would be, right? It's a lot easier to point out the limits of a formalism than to substantiate your argument with claims about what, not just what should be, but what can be and what and what we're able to make be. That's just actually a radically different way of talking because it's coming from a place that's real rather than a place that's hypothetical. So you're saying that most individuals aren't given the tools to do something that is real. And is that an issue? That's probably a whole different I'm, I'm saying itself. that, it, yes, yes. I'm saying that it is an issue. I mean, yes, and I'm saying that most people are not in a position to do so. But I, I also think that we're given license to really not think about that most of the time because it's uncomfortable. And so we all kind of pretty, I, I'm, I'm including myself here, to be clear. We mostly act in this kind of as if way, this kind of provisional way that like assuming these things, then this is what would be true. So much of what we say we hope is valid, but very little of it is sound because it's very rare for our assumptions themselves to be grounded or be tested in a way that we can see if they're grounded or not. And again, that's that's AI. The whole beauty is doubling down on assumptions, turning up the Bayesian heat on them, seeing where that gets you in simulation, some simulation, right? And then tying that to an interface. And it's not until you get to the interface that this is anything real because it's not doing anything until that point. Can you work backwards from the in interface? Instead, like if most, uh, I don't know if it's worth going into this whole debate right now, but I definitely echo what you're saying is that most of the decisions you make as a researcher or engineer are so abstract that they don't motivate you as if you were doing something real. And then that masks a lot of the challenges of working in AI and probably protects you from some of the stress that the hype might otherwise put on you. Right. I mean, I think I think actually what we're circling here is continuous with the theme, which is that hype is fueled. The oxygen of the hype, if the, if the hype is the fire, the oxygen for it is the unreality of our ways of talking about these systems of which we're and we're all in that ecosystem. It's but it's also interesting. You can work back from the interface and other technologies have in the past. Right. Like there's famous case studies where. Um, this at first wasn't true, like during the New Deal and, and in that context of like the early 20th century, dams were just built because they generated electricity. And the fact that in doing that, you're changing water cycles and water flow and where, where there are lakes and where there can be towns was sort of an afterthought, which is crazy until a new generation of civil engineers came along 
and realize like, oh, so what we should be doing is building dams to design for the different kinds of water flow that we want there to be. And that was a that was a shift in psychology, but it meant that rather than just starting with this model of how much electricity you want and seeing how big the dam would have to be and then just building the thing and seeing what happens, you actually start with the anticipated consequences of the deployment and then work backwards. And there is both formal work and certainly interface work that speaks to this. I mean, yeah, this is a whole line of work on performative prediction. This goes back to the monopoly point <laughs> earlier, uh, but this whole line of argument to say like, yeah, you can design classifiers that are sensitive to their own use and their own strategic understanding by those they impact. You can design for that. We just largely don't because we don't have to. And that's even a different conversation. It's like, how would you even do that well? That's It's a whole different ecosystem. Yeah, I suspect that we'll come back to this. I feel like it's kind of the natural place to end it, which is we've teased enough that people can start to think about what it means to design a machine learning model with the implement with the actual implications in mind. Not that it is easy, but there are some papers that we've read about this and how certain models can like make like make certain systems more racist or whatever. We'll we'll get to these in a future episode. But if anyone has any hype stories or integrity stories from their workplace in AI, if you feel free to reach out, leave a comment wherever you can find that. Um, thanks for listening. Any last words? Uh, I think hype is okay. Just buckle up and know where your feet are. Sounds good. On that note, I am going to go to the gas station, fuel up, (laughs) get ready to burn some oxygen, and sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, bye Bye for now, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.